Um, bunch of stuff still left. Three, three things due today. There was, one, there was one change. I originally had two quizzes set up that I told you were due today. And then when I went on and looked at them this morning, I didn't, nobody, nobody told me this weekend that one of them wasn't even available. I didn't even release the one until today. Uh, quiz 7. So I just left it where it was, left it through the 27th. So you can take quiz 7 anytime it's available now. You can take that anytime between now and through now and the final exam. So the only things due today, the solar observations project, you can submit that online as well as long as you can either turn me in the graphs and data first if you can't scan them or photograph them in some way. If you're going to submit it digitally, you can scan or photograph them and submit them as attachments there. If you're doing corrections for exam three, that's due today. And then quiz six, that is still due today. That covered chapters 13 and 14. Uh, tomorrow is the third article review and last one. And then I'll hopefully have all that stuff back to you by Wednesday when we take the uh, quiz eight. Take quiz eight before quiz seven this time. But uh, quiz eight in class is the last, uh, last, supposed to be the last quiz. It's supposed to be the easiest quiz. Um, it's in class. I give you a, a piece, of piece of paper with the numbers 1 through 12 and a list of objects, which include the planets and Pluto and one of the asteroids, and I have you put them in order of distance from the sun. So I list them alphabetically. I just have you put them in order of distance starting with sun. So number one is sun when I give it to you, and then you go out to the furthest, most distant object. So. I'll give you a little bit more about that, but that, that's all it is. So if you know the planets in order, you pretty much have most of it because eight of the objects are the planets, ninth is the sun. Um, and then there were, what else did I do? So nine was the sun, and then there were two, like um, Pluto was included, Eris, and Ceres. So one of the asteroids, which is between Mars and Jupiter, and then Pluto beyond Neptune, and, and Eris actually beyond Pluto. So if you have all those in order, just I figure if you take an astronomy class, at least you can say that you have the planets in order at the, at the end of it. So that's what a quiz, the last quiz will be. So whole idea is for everybody to get 12 out of 12 on it. Nice easy quiz. You know exactly what it's going to be. And that gives you a chance to look at that for Wednesday. That's, that'll be Wednesday. And then homework 8, the last of the homeworks will be due on Wednesday. The two iTunes quizzes are up and available now. Uh, quiz 3 covers the last 12 pictures through yesterday. So from the previous quiz through yesterday's pictures, those 12 days are on quiz three. Quiz four covers everything from May 20th till yesterday. And it'll take 12 random questions out of those. So it takes all the questions. You may see, you'll see questions you've seen before. It'll just take 12 randomly and give you those. And then between that and quiz seven and quiz eight, got a bunch of quizzes left. Two of those will end up being drops. Your two lowest quizzes during the semester, if you missed one for any reason, or if you did really poorly on one, two of the lowest quizzes will be dropped. But they won't be dropped until the very end. Right now it'll add everything in until we get to completing these two. It won't actually start, dro start dropping them. Uh, if you want to do exam corrections for exam four, I do need those by the final exam. If you're making up anything, I need it by the final exam since we're done. And then the final will be on the 27th. I'll give you some information on that tomorrow. And I expect to have everything done and graded. The only thing I'll be waiting on is if anybody decides to wait on their quizzes until um, after the exam to do it. So if you get those quizzes done, then I will have uh, final grades up and done uh, sometime on Thursday afternoon for you. So you'll be done and you can say good riddance to me and you don't have to worry about it anymore.
Questions on that? Alrighty. Well, picture of the day for today. The Porpoise Galaxy. So, interesting shaped galaxy here. Um, maybe in the shape of a dolphin coming up here. You know, jumping up over the other galaxy here. Uh, what this is, is actually, as we've been talking about galaxy collisions, that's exactly really what we're seeing here. Bless you. That's really what we're seeing here too, is the process of uh, this galaxy being distorted by the gravity of another galaxy. So, uh, probably a massive black hole at this one. This one has been distorted, so it's actually torn the shape of this, uh, what would have been a more normal spiral galaxy at one point. And you can sort of see the core up here and some kind of spiral arms, but the whole big wing stretched out over here as the gravity of the elliptical galaxy down here has completely distorted the shape of this one, of this other galaxy, giving it its distinctive shape. A lot of blue stars visible here, very bluish color, especially up here towards the no nose of the porpoise. And then down here, that again is all gravitational interaction. So gravity is causing these gas clouds to collide, causing stars to begin to form. When stars form, the first stars that form are the massive hot blue ones, and they don't live very long. So the fact that we're seeing them now, if they only live 5 million years, 10 million years, means that they must have formed that recently. They could not have formed you know, 100 million years ago. So this is something that is in the process of going on right now. And a galaxy collision will take something like hundred million, hundreds of millions of years to actually occur. So if we could come back in you know, tens of millions of years, we'd see, this we'd see the overall shape of these changing. If we could look at what they were like several million years ago, we'd see a different shape to these galaxies, especially to the porpoise one. But in our lifetime, of course, we will never see the change because for the galaxies, it's a much, much slower process than anything we're used to here. And this is actually a Hubble Space Telescope, Hubble Space Telescope image. So, questions? And no, this one is not included on your quiz. I cut it off with yesterday's because that made 12 exactly. So this one will not come up on the quizzes. You see a little bit there? Yeah. See, something in astronomy looks like what it's named after. <laughs> One thing. <laughs> so. And it's kind of jumping over the galaxy, right? Interesting. And that one's not included on your quiz, so I'm not going to ask you about that one. All righty. Questions, questions? Otherwise, we are going to finish up Actually, no, we're not going right to chapter 16. I was going to do one other thing first. We were looking at galaxy collisions. And since we were talking about galaxy collisions last time, and I'll come back and review that in chapter 16, I wanted to show you a little um, applet here that lets you collide galaxies together. So you can actually take a couple galaxies and smash them together on the computer and see what, will ha what would happen. Because now we can run time a lot faster. So we don't have to sit there and wait for the galaxies to slowly move towards each other. You know, it'd be like watching a car crash with cars moving at, you know, inches per hour. You know, not um, so do a search for galaxy crash and it'll come up. It's actually from, it shows up there. It's burrow.cwru.edu. But if you do a galaxy crash, you'll probably find it a lot easier there. Do you see it? 
Case Western Reserve University and should show Chris Mijos. Actually a guy I went to graduate school with. So. But he was he's something he's worked on. So what we can do is if you load it up and you start the galaxies moving together, it'll slowly, they'll slowly approach each other. And you can see as they get close, you can stop it here. Nice figure eight galaxy as you have the galaxy stars moving around. But you can see how they're starting to get distorted. And as you continue, now we've come through a little bit. We've taken 200 million years of time in those few seconds. They've gone through 200 million years worth of time. But now you've distorted what looked like two little disk galaxies into uh, things that are starting to get almost a spiral structure to them. And you can let it continue to run. You see galaxy stars actually transferring from one galaxy to the other. So you have stars that were part of the red galaxy down here that are now part of the green. Stars that were part of the green that are now part of the red galaxy. So you get some very interesting patterns. Now you can change a whole bunch of things in here. Um, if you want to play around with it. I have it set for 2,000 stars just because it shows the most detail. But you can also change how big the galaxies are. So if you want to collide a little tiny galaxy, make the red galaxy very tiny compared to the green one. Start out with they were both about the same. And if we collide them together here, let's see, did I, oops, I didn't reset it. Let's try, there we go. Now we've got it. So a little tiny galaxy now. See how big the distortion, how much less the distortion is with the big galaxy, more massive galaxy, much less. The little galaxy got torn apart. Some of those streamers are mostly from that little galaxy stretching way, way back. Is that a star? That would represent the black hole. That would represent the gravity of the black hole at the center. So if you wanted to try, you can try other things. You can try a Right now, as you noticed, that when, they're, when they're running together, let me start this again, they're not quite hitting. They're kind of an offset hit. It's just kind of skimming the very edge of the galaxy. Well, you can change uh, this column here that I've highlighted is actually changing how far apart the galaxies are when they get their closest. So if you want to do a head-on collision, you'd make that a zero. Okay, so now we're going to come straight on. We're not, we're not going to just glance off the edge of the galaxy. We're going to come straight in and hit it. I'm still using the very little red galaxy by comparison. So now it's going to kind of splash right through the middle of this galaxy. And you see how the stars from that one oops, really got, again, you change this one, but not near as much as you change this one. The little tiny galaxy got quite distorted by comparison. So just something you can sit there, you know, if you want to find it, you can play around with it. Just do a web search for galaxy crash and it will come up. And you can then, you know, play with the galaxy. You can actually grab and turn this and, you know, look at them from different angles. So if you want to look at the more edge on, how do things look? Or if you want to look at them face on or tilt them. And you can get all sorts of different patterns there. They're done pretty much in two dimensions. So they're all disk galaxies, so it's not looking at a big ball galaxies, which would be significantly more computation time to do three dimensions worth of it. But it still gives you some idea, just to play with, to give you some idea of how galaxies can collide and how it can distort them. Because you, <coughs> you can change the mass of the galaxy, you can change the, how close they are. You can also add things in like friction and dark matter halos if you want to add more features to it. And then you can let them run. In this case, this one ran for 400 million years. So 
the galaxy collisions, again, take a very long period of time to occur. They don't occur just in, you know, seconds or minutes or hours or anything that we can watch. They take incredible, incredible amounts of time. So if you wanted to go back and look at how their changes are, you've got to do them by simulations here on a computer because we just don't have the time to sit there, you know, don't have 400 million years to sit there and watch them, watch them occur. But you can, if you like to sit there and play with that, you're, you're welcome to at some point. Um, again, just do a search for galaxy crash. And it's a nice little Java applet that does, that does the, does the calculations for thousands, for just a few thousand stars. Now it's sort of a, a basic as to what an astronomer would do for who's really simulating these, who would use a much more powerful computer and instead of using just 2,000 stars, which might sound like a lot, is hardly anything compared to how many stars there are in a galaxy, would actually use you know, how many billions and hundreds of billions of stars there are in an individual galaxy and then try to do all those calculations and calculating the gravity of each star pulling on each other star plus the black hole at the center. It gets to be pretty computer intensive to do this. But just to play with it and get some ideas, you can see what happens even in a very simple, simple case here. So I wanted to show you, since we've been talking about galaxy collisions, I did want to show you, to show you a little bit about that. Question, question? Before we go back to today's stuff? All right. I'm sorry? Isn't that cool? I want to play it too. So you can smash galaxies. There's actually. Uh, there's another, there's an app for like the iPad that will do the same thing or iPhone that will do the same thing where you can actually crash galaxies together on your phone. So you can do that, do that as well. Alright, so we were looking at galaxy collisions and last time we ended up here on, we were talking about the black holes and we were talking about really the evolution of galaxies. How do galaxies change from one type to another? Or in other words, how do we get from these little teeny tiny galaxies and giant star clusters that we saw a long, long time ago to the typical normal galaxies that we see today. Spiral galaxies and elliptical galaxies. And the process that we believe happens is through these constant collisions. That a long time ago there was a whole of billions upon billions and trillions of these little tiny irregular galaxies. So. Some of them like irregular galaxies we see today and they'd slowly collide. So they, they're relatively big compared to their separations. They'd eventually collide together forming a little bit bigger galaxy. And those would collide together. You'd merge together, you know, two here and then eventually you'd have four and five and six and you'd start to form that massive black hole at the center. As you collide enough matter down into a small enough radius, you'll eventually form a black hole down at the center. And that's what's formed here. And then as those continue to collide, that black hole starts getting fed. Right? We feed it, we're giving it a source of energy, and it starts forming that accretion disk, material spiraling into it. As that material spirals into it, it gives off energy, so it releases energy. And that's what we're seeing as a quasar. When we're putting lots and lots of material, whole dust clouds, whole clusters of stars into that black hole as they spiral in, they give off a lot of energy and form what we see as a quasar. Incredibly bright, incredibly uh, amount, incredible amount of energy being released. Now the next step depends on what happens. You can have two different cases. You formed quasars, so you have a whole bunch of quasars here. We're about 10 billion years ago. And then you have the choice that you could maybe, sometimes two quasars would collide in a very major explosion. So a major merger here, two 
two colliding, forming the radio, radio galaxy. So we form a radio galaxy here, the big jets of material streaming out as those two black holes collide. All that energy is released. And we could see that as, you know, looking down this way, we see the lobes and the jets coming out. If we're looking at it from this direction, we just see a very bright radio galaxy. And then, but that black hole won't stay active forever. It'll eventually suck in that material close to it. And recall that if you're far enough away from the black hole, its gravity is just normal gravity. It's just like there's a million, if it's a million solar mass black hole, it's just like there's a million stars in there. If you're far enough away, your motion doesn't depend on whether all that matter is concentrated at the point of a black hole or if it's just a million stars inside you. Your motion will be exactly the same. So once it has sucked up all that material inside it, it'll quiet down and be a normal elliptical galaxy. The black hole's still there, hasn't gone anyplace. So the black hole is still there at the center of that elliptical. If you were to collide another galaxy with that elliptical, you could reignite that black hole, get it start producing energy again. Otherwise, if nothing else happens, it'll just sit there nicely and calmly. It's attracting some energy and doing some things like that, but not, not near the amount that it was doing back here or back here even when it was a quasar. Now the other possibility is that you take your quasar and instead of smashing it with another quasar is to collide it with a um, smaller galaxy, one of these irregulars. That's how we believe the, ellip the spiral galaxies form. So you get a little collisions here and we sort of saw that when we did our galaxy crash a little while ago that you could collide them and you could actually form some kinds of spiral structures starting to come out of those. And the first of those that would form would be a Seifert galaxy starts to look like a spiral galaxy, but the core is much, much brighter than a typical spiral. And that's still the same situation here. The black hole is being fed. You're throwing material, you're throwing whole dust clouds into that black hole. And that is what's giving off the energy. Eventually, just as with the radio galaxy, you're going to use up the energy that you had. And once that's all used up, there's nothing left for the black hole to do. It just sits there. Sits there nice and calm. Again, until you start feeding it again, it's just going to sit there nice and quiet. And you're not even going to know it's there except through its gravitational interactions. But as long as nothing's close to it, it's not going to be producing the immense amount of energies it was as a Seifert, or as a quasar, or as a radio galaxy. So, just wanted to go back through that again. That's what we kind of covered on Thursday of last week. In the last section of this chapter, is really starting to look out at really big scales of the universe. We've been looking at all the little tiny stuff. We looked at our solar system. We looked at the solar neighborhood, stars around us. We looked at our little tiny, you know, our galaxy, our little tiny galaxy. Right now we're jumping out to the very grandest scales of the universe. And this is really a three-dimensional map of the universe over scales of 100 million parsecs, 300 million light years is what this a line this long represents. Now, remember, I mean, we had our solar system, how big our sun was, how big, you know, how, how, but the distances between the stars. This little dot here is now our local group. So that little tiny dot there is our galaxy, the Andromeda galaxy, M33, and a bunch of other little galaxies. So 
we're getting to really gigantic scales. You know, our solar system, don't even try to get to a scale. You, can, you couldn't even go down to atomic size and get, you know, fit in where our, our, gal our solar system would be on this kind of scale. But what we're seeing is that the galaxies not only cluster like our local group. Here's the Virgo cluster. The Virgo cluster isn't all by itself. It's actually part of an even larger cluster which includes several others. As we map them out, they're actually all connected together. There's the Virgo and Centaurus and Hydra. And those all merge together in one supercluster. On the other side of the sky, a couple other clusters are merged together. And there's a big giant. So the galaxies not only group together, but they group to the groups group together. So you get clusters of clusters of galaxies, which are what we call the superclusters. And that's what you're seeing on some of these, some of these very large groups of galaxies. Again, they're just showing as a vague outline there. You're not plotting all the galaxies in it, but a vague outline of where those galaxies are forming. And us, we're at the very edge of the Virgo cluster, or the Virgo supercluster if you want to count the whole thing in. We're just a, sort of right off the edge of that. There are still some little clusters as well, but galaxies have a tendency to group together. You don't see lots of you know, galaxies just randomly scattered around the sky. They tend to be in big groups. So here if we look at the Virgo cluster here, looking at all the different galaxies, again you start to see that there's just not, galaxies are not scattered randomly over the sky. They seem to be grouped together. Here's some of those sections here, part of this supercluster, part of it over here. Goes from one edge of the sky almost to the other. This is one of the closest uh, superclusters to us. And stretches from one end of the sky up towards Virgo, down towards Centaurus and Hydra down here where we have all of these galaxies. But you'll notice that there's a lot of galaxies concentrated in certain areas. And there's big areas where there's hardly anything. Big empty spaces where there's there's a few scattered galaxies, yes, but compared to what you see here, you know, how many galaxies are in this group or in this box versus how many do you count here? Well, I'm not going to try to count those. I'm not going to try to count those, but I could probably sit here and count, you know, get a little magnifying glass and I could probably count how many galaxies there are there. Probably still a good number, but nothing compared to what we're seeing in the others. So the galaxies do tend to concentrate and we get this almost uh, bubbly or foamy appearance to the universe when we look at these very big scales. You know, it looks like a bunch of little bubbles in the, in the universe. <coughs> so here's a picture of the, galaxy, of the galaxies. And what we see here, we're looking again at very, very large distances. 100 million parsecs, about 300 million light years, about 600 million light years. Still Looking at big scales, but we're still looking relatively nearby. 600 million light years, right? We've got 600, 600 million light years, but the universe is about 13.7 or so billion. So we're getting out a chunk of the way there, you know? twice that and then 10, so about 20 times, about 1 20th of the size of the universe. Not very much. No. 1 20th of the size of the universe is about what we're looking at here. So we're only looking really still in very, very close to us. But again, each of those dots represents, actually in this case, lots of galaxies. Not just a single galaxy. 
we plot ourselves at the center because, not because we're at the center of anything, but because that's how we see everything. We see it as though we're at the center, but any other uh, person in one of these other galaxies making the plot would see something very similar, would see the same general patterns. And we note that on these kind of scales, looking at these 100 to 200 million parsecs, 300 to 600 million light years, that there are structures, there are some areas where there's lots of galaxies. This is the Great Wall, so a big wall of galaxies almost stretching across the sky here. Some other ones here, right? the little, little figure of a person there, you got a head and a body and a couple legs and some arms sticking out by the wall. Amazing what your mind will put into, into images, right? That, that, aren't, that aren't really there. But you also see big areas where there's just nothing. You know, even relatively close to us, there's a whole big area here where there's no galaxies. Hardly any galaxies. Hardly anything here. Hardly anything over here or here. So there are various areas that we see, and we're still seeing some structures in the galaxy that are this big. But again, the whole idea is that the galaxies are grouping together, so we get things like the big superclusters, the walls that we see here, and we get the leftover area or voids where we don't see any galaxies at all. And that's quite a bit, uh, quite a bit of the area of the universe here. So there's a lot of the universe that is really pretty empty. If we do it a little bit further out, now we're going out instead of Let's see, what did we go to last time? 600 million light years? That was in about here. We were looking at what? Yeah, about here on that one the last time. So, not a whole lot there. This is what we were looking at the last time. We were looking at the near. Now we're looking way out towards the edge of the universe. Going out 600, 700 million parsecs. So way out towards the end, towards the edge, towards the edge of the universe. Now, one thing you do notice is you notice that there seem to be hardly any galaxies down here. When you get to the very edge, it seems like there's a lot more galaxies here, and there's hardly any down here. That's not absolutely true. There are lots of galaxies out there, but when you're looking out many billions of light years, it's hard to see. Hard to see a galaxy if you're looking billions of light years away. You're only going to be able to see the brightest of the bright galaxies. So you're only looking at the very brightest galaxies because they're the only ones whose light can actually make it to us down here. So whether we're looking north or south. But you see the same kind of structures even on those very large scales. You don't see anything much bigger. You have some walls. Walls stretching around. Walls. Filaments here, as they're called, again, more little stretches of where there's lots of galaxies, and you see a lot of voids. A lot of big empty spaces here, here, here. You know, almost a, a bubbly or almost a frothy appearance to the universe at these very large scales. What we do not see when you get to this kind of scale is any big structures stretching longer than this 100 to 200 million parsecs. We don't see any big giant features that are stretching several hundred million parsecs. There's not a big cluster of galaxies that stretches from here to here. We don't see that kind of feature. We see little ones here, maybe a wall here that's a little bit, another one here. But they're all very small structures. There's nothing when you get on, on the very largest scales that we see that's anything like that, anything that big. We don't see any sign of any structure on a larger scale than that. 
All right, so what can we learn from quasars? Quasars, we know that they're all very distant. They're all at least 10 billion light years away. We don't see any quasars closer than that. That means the light has traveled for 10 billion years to get to us. And during that time, I mean, that's traveled to a lot of space. 10 billion years traveling at the speed of light. You know, that's a distance beyond anything we can imagine. Right? 10 billion light years worth of space. So it's traveled through it. So we can learn something about that space by studying the light. Because as the light travels through different parts of space, things will happen to it. Right? If it passes through a hydrogen cloud, gas is, the gas is going to absorb certain wavelengths. If it passes through a dust cloud, then we're not going to see it at all. Then it's going to get blocked out completely. But if it passes through a gas cloud, gases don't absorb, absorb all the light. They only absorb very specific wavelengths. Hydrogen, for example, absorbs. We looked at the pattern of it earlier in the semester. Uh, in one of the labs, and you saw that it absorbed a nice red line and some other lines in the blue and the violet. All the other light comes straight through hydrogen, but those specific wavelengths get blocked out. So every time hydrogen passes through a, everything, every time the light passes through a hydrogen cloud, a little bit of that light will be blocked out at those specific wavelengths. But those wavelengths change because the universe is expanding. So what we actually get is something like this. This is where the wavelength should be. This is where one of the bright hydrogen lines should be, actually one of the ultraviolet ones. We observe it in the galaxy way out here. In between, all this jumping up and down isn't just noise. That's actually observing the absorption of hydrogen as we go from the distance of that quasar more than 10 billion light years away towards us. And this is called the absorption line forest. And it's just that same light. This quasar is emitting all this light at this, of this, across the spectrum. But as it comes through, it absorbs out. But that line is redshifted. All these clouds of hydrogen that it passed through, each of them is redshifted by a different amount. If they're further away from us, they're redshifted a little bit more. Right? If they're right by that quasar and they're expanding away as fast, almost as fast as the quasar is, they're going to be very close to it. As you get closer and closer to us, when you get up almost up to where we are right now, the universal expansion is not very much. So the, this, the material is not shifted as much. So by studying this, we can learn what the hydrogen is like across that entire 10 billion light year stretch of the universe. Just look into that quasar. It doesn't tell me what the quasar is there. It's not telling me what's there. It's not telling me what's there. Off to either side, above or below it. But it's telling me, looking in that specific direction, that I can learn something about how much hydrogen is there the entire way through. So something that we could not otherwise detect very easily. This is going to be able to detect it. This is one way we can actually learn about the material that is between us and that quasar. Now, we talked a little bit about this, and I think I showed you a little bit on gravitational lensing. Uh, first time this was looked at, this looked like to be like a double quasar. So question, do quasars, you know, do you have quasars orbiting each other like you have stars orbiting each other? But what was found after studying these, and if you look at them, it's almost a mirror image of the two. And they were very similar. They had very similar properties. 
And it turned out on further study that not only they were similar, but they were identical. Meaning that one got brighter, the other got brighter. One got fainter, the other got fainter. Their variations were exactly the same. So we found out that it's really not a single quasar, but uh, not a pair of quasars, but actually a single quasar. And there is actually something in between us and that quasar that is bending its light and giving us two images of that quasar. So we can get that as we have you know, a quasar way out here. And in between it somewhere we can have a galaxy or something with a black hole. And we're observing from over here. Well that black hole as light passes near it gets bent. And we may then see one image of the quasar coming this direction, one image of the quasar out in that direction. It's the same quasar. Nothing's changed, it's just the light has traveled this path to get to us. Some of the other light was sent out this direction, ended up getting bent to come to us this way. And we can then actually see two images or more of the quasar depending on exactly how well lined up these two objects are. So this is again, we've mentioned this before when we talked about uh, relativity, this is gravitational lensing. Where gravity actually behaves like a lens and bends light. And that allows us again to learn about, we can study this quasar in now multiple images and maybe in multiple times. We can see what the quasar is like as we observe it at this second, but we might observe it as it was at a different time as well because these paths are not necessarily the same length. So if one of these paths is a little bit longer than the other, it takes the light a little bit longer to reach us down that path. Might be a few weeks, might be a few months. So those variations that we see might not be exactly in time, but one might get brighter and then Say a month later, the other one gets brighter. Then this one gets fainter, and a month later, this one gets fainter. The pattern is exactly the same, but the time might be different. So in a way, you're kind of looking into the future of that quasar. If you look at one of them, you can predict what the other is going to do a month, several months down the road, depending on the time lag. And that's just because one of these might be taking a slightly longer path. If it takes it a little bit longer, if it takes it a couple more astronomical units, or a you know, a fraction of a light year to, to, in terms of path length, it's going to take the light a little bit longer time to get to us. Alrighty. So here's what we're looking at, kind of the picture I just gave you on the board. Um, and what we really learn about is a little bit about the quasar because, as I said, there's a time difference between these two. If you look at these, this one looks like it's a little bit longer path and it might take us a little bit more time so this image then might be a little bit behind image A, might be a little bit behind image B in terms of the brightness variations. You'll see things happen to B and then a certain amount of time later corresponding to the dif difference between that you'll see the same variations happen in image A. We can also learn a lot about this galaxy in between us. If you recall we use this method to discuss, discover or define dark matter. Right, by looking at how that intervening object bent the starlight from stars behind it. 
Well, we can do the same thing by learning how this galaxy, how this distant quasar is bent. We can then learn about the gravity and about how much mass there is in this galaxy by measuring the, the bending of the light. So how the more shifted out these two objects are, the further they are away from where they would have been otherwise, the stronger the gravity of that, the galaxy in between. The stronger that lensing. And we can then measure that and there are calculations that could be done to then determine how much mass there must be in that galaxy to account for the bending of light that we're seeing. Here, in some cases, you can actually get more. <coughs> it's not confined to just getting two images. You can imagine that three-dimensionally. Maybe you're getting a third and a fourth. In this case, you have the distant quasar. Not even close to being to scale, right? Quasar is there, you know, 10 billion light years away. This galaxy is somewhere in between. Might be so far away that it's hardly visible to us. Quasar might be much, much brighter. But as the light passes through, it might get magnified up here, on this side, on this side, and on this side, giving us one, two, three, four images of the quasar. In fact, if you could get the ob- if you had a perfect, a black hole lined up perfectly with that quasar, you'd actually get a ring. You would actually see, you know, if you could see the central image, you'd see the central image of the quasar, and then you'd get a ring of images. Eh, not very well centered, but you get the idea. You'd actually get a whole ring around it if you had everything lined up exactly perfect. You would have what we call an Einstein ring, which really just means that you've got everything lined up. You have the galaxy, the, the quasar, the black hole that's doing the distorting, and the Earth all in a perfectly straight line. You have all three of those objects in a perfectly straight line. If you're a little bit off, you might see one or two or three or four or five images, depending on how the exact alignments go. But if everything is lined up precisely, you would see a ring in terms of this around it. So instead of just seeing one, two, three, four here, you could imagine this, you'd actually see a whole ring worth. (coughs) Excuse me. A ring worth of material there. Here's a couple more images of gravitational lensing. It's not just galaxies, individual galaxies that do it. It can be a whole cluster. So instead of having just a single galaxy in here, you could have a whole big cluster. And the light will then come through multiple ways. And you see all the objects that you're looking here are galaxies. So all these big bright objects are in nearby, relatively nearby galaxies, at least compared to the distant quasar. And you see little bits of arcs of this and this, all these all things that are all distorted. Those are all little tiny images of the same more distant galaxy or quasar. So the dist- more distant galaxies or more distant clusters are getting me- imaged and lensed by this larger, more massive cluster that is nearby. So all these little bits and pieces, some of them are similar galaxies, some of them are multiple parts of this much more different cluster. On the other side, you see probably just images of a single galaxy from behind. You see a stretch here, 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 here. All these bluish ones. As the light is coming around this cluster, it gets imaged into a whole bunch of different little bits and pieces. Think about that. You don't have just a single lens. If you had just a black hole, it would be like having a single lens. It would be the simple picture that I tried to draw up here. But now you've got a lot of gravity here, and here, and here, and here, and here. 
All that combined together makes for a very complicated lens system and the material gets spread out. The images get spread out all over the place. You can still take these images, take a computer, work it backwards and work out what the bending has to be and then still determine how much gravity there is in that cluster. So you can still determine the mass of the cluster this way. So it's one of our ways, in addition to talking about motions, we talked about doing it how stars moved, how galaxy clusters moved around each other and looking at their orbits. This is another way to be able to determine the mass of a cluster. So nice to have two ways to be able to do something because you can compare. You know, do they give you the same number or do they give you numbers that are wildly different? And if you get similar numbers then it's telling us that there's a lot of matter there and what we're going to see is that there's a lot of matter there that we just don't see. That to account for this lensing, for how this, how this is lensed, if we go through and do the calculations to figure out how this is lensed, there's got to be a lot more matter here than what we're seeing. You can't just take this galaxy and add up all these galaxies, even including a big black hole at the center of each one, and get near enough matter to account for how bent the light is. So we're still, there's still a lot of matter that is dark that is missing out there. And in fact, what's what this last one is seeing. Left-hand side is a cluster of galaxies, so just a picture of a galaxy cluster. Um, most of those, with a few exceptions, there's a few bright stars in some of these here, but most of this, what you're seeing is galaxies. So, nice galaxy cluster here. There, there's the central portion, you know, right in here of these clusters. This is where all the matter is. So just based on the motions of these galaxies and how they're moving, we can figure out, okay, how much matter does there have to be to explain that that cluster is still there a billion, several billion years later, that it hasn't dispersed out into space. It's got to have enough gravity to hold it together. If it didn't, those galaxies would slowly spread out over astronomical timescales, yes, over hundreds of millions and maybe a billion years, but the cluster is still there 10 billion years later. So if we do that and work backwards, we see that, yeah, there's the, there's, we see the bright, bright mass where the galaxies are, but there's a lot of dark matter that is spread out over whole big areas where there doesn't necessarily seem to be a whole lot of galaxies. So there's a lot of this dark matter that we have to try to, uh, we have to use to be able to explain the motions that we have of galaxies. What do we see in terms of how the galaxies move? We need to need all this dark matter to explain those motions, to explain the gravitational lensing that we see, to explain the motions of the galaxies and the fact that the clusters are still bound together even after, you know, 10 billion years. They're still there. They're still there and bound together and those clusters have not dissipated off into a uniform distribution of galaxies. <coughs> mm. All right. Well, let's finish up 16 and we'll get on to start 17 today. Uh, 16, again, we were looking at masses. We're looking at how to, how to measure the galaxy masses. And you know, no, no great big scale. You can't go put one of them on a great big scale to measure it. We need to use their gravity to be able to measure it. So we're using their gravity. How do they affect stars? So looking at rotation curves. How do the stars orbit around the center of that galaxy? We find that they're all orbiting way too fast. They shouldn't be orbiting near that fast based on the number, amount of mass that we can see. So the mass that we determine by looking at the galaxy and counting up the stars doesn't match up with what we get from the gravity. There's a discrepancy there which means that something's wrong. 
We do the same thing when we look at galaxy clusters. We look at galaxies, the galaxies are moving within the clusters, we can measure their velocities. We know that if they had a certain vo enough velocity, they'd escape from the cluster. If they were moving fast enough, just like a rocket launched to an escape velocity speed, we'll be able to get away from the Earth. The, the galaxies would be able to do the same thing. They'd eventually escape from that cluster. And, like the collisions, not in 10 years or 100 years or even a million years, but over hundreds of millions and billions of years, those two will slow, they'd slowly spread out and the galaxies would just be spread out uniformly across the universe. So because of both of those, it shows that there must be a large amount of dark matter in order to explain the rotation curves and the motions that we see of the galaxies. In terms of galaxies forming, there's a lot of mergers, a lot of collisions. So galaxies probably uh, cannibalized each other. So took one galaxy, collided, grabbed other galaxies, and used those to build up its mass. So larger galaxies, as we collided, the, as those smaller galaxies collided together, we actually were able to form larger galaxies. You can likely, we looked at kind of, uh, when we looked at the two um, quasars colliding, you might be able to two, take two spiral galaxies, smash them together, completely disrupt all their orbits. If you took two big spiral galaxies, you can completely disrupt all their orbits. You could completely form all the stars. You could crash all those gas clouds together at once. And you can actually form an elliptical galaxy. So you can actually take spiral galaxies and form an elliptical. You probably can't take elliptical galaxies and form a spiral galaxy, though. Big difference is elliptical galaxies don't have any gas and dust. So I collide two elliptical galaxies together. Maybe I could make some kind of disk galaxy or some kind of thing with, with some kind of spiral structure. But it's not going to have any gas and dust to form stars. So it's not going to end up being a spiral galaxy. You might be able to form for a lenticular galaxy, right? It's a disk galaxy without gas and dust. Perhaps you could do something like that. But it may just be a matter of how they collide together. I showed you the two-dimensional simulation. If you do them in three dimensions, can you, what kind of different galaxies can you make? So you can look at merging spirals together, using up all that gas and dust all in a great big burst of star formation all at once, and leaving behind just the stars with no other gas and dust to form, to form anything is a possibility. And we looked at some of that in terms of the evolution of galaxies. We think that there's a sequence between quasars being the, some of the oldest objects that we can see in the universe, active galaxies, and normal galaxies, so that a quasar as it collides and slowly slows down, will become an active galaxy. Something that looks like a regular galaxy, but a little bit more active, a little bit more energy being produced at its center. And then could then quiet down as that black hole ceases be, to be fed, would quiet down to be a normal galaxy. So you could start with the quasar, it could become an active galaxy, and then become a normal galaxy. A normal galaxy could then become active again in perhaps a collision. Collide two galaxies together, wake up that black hole sleeping at the center, start feeding it, and you'll start to get an, you'll start to see an active galaxy again. So we can get some active galaxies that are very close to us uh, because of collisions. Now what we really looked at this time today was the clusters, and that galaxies not only stars just stars group into galaxies, galaxies group into clusters. 
But those clusters actually group into larger areas called superclusters. And we see structure on a scale of maybe 100 to 200 million parsecs. But beyond that, we don't see any sign of structure. That means we don't see any features that are bigger than 100 or 200 uh, million parsecs across. Boy, how, come th- how do things need to be bigger than that, right? 100 million. I can't even imagine 100 million parsecs. You know, I can't imagine 100 million light years or 100, 100 million astronomical units. You, know, you can't even imagine those distances. But when we look at all of that, we don't see any structure. So it's telling us something about the very early time in the universe, which is really the subject of the next chapter. But it tells us a little bit about how the universe formed. Because depending on how it formed, there might have been more structure or less structure at bigger or smaller scales. So the fact that we don't see anything, we don't see any gigantic you know, 400 megaparsec features across the universe, we don't see anything like that then it tells us something about the early, early universe. The other way that we learn about the universe is through quasars. Quasars not only in terms of their light and just studying what things were like a long time ago, but we can use them to study space in between us and the quasar. So we can learn about all those hydrogen clouds between us and the quasar by studying the absorption line forced. Studying the light that gets absorbed off that, out of that quasar. Because everyone is at a different shift, different, different velocity, a different Doppler shift. And therefore, we can learn about that whole path that we saw. We can learn about that entire path that light took and be able to study that. <clears throat> we can also learn if there's a, a lensing, gravitational lensing. If it is bending the light, we can learn about these objects. We can learn about this object in between by studying how the light of that quasar has been bent around it. So that's some ways that we can learn about that material in here. Even if we can't really see much here, this, quas- this, this galaxy might be too faint, might be too distant to be seen. But there could be a massive black hole at the center that is still distorting the light. And that's something that we can learn about by studying how these quasars are, how their images are bent. All right, that should finish chapter 16. Any questions, questions?